Hi guys, and welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who, right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. Today we're going to be talking about the first story of Season 2, Planet of Giants. Before we get into the show proper though, I just want to call out that we would love to hear what you think of these stories. Would you give them the same score we did? Are there things that you noticed that we missed? To join in on the conversation, you can check us out at Time Teep, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. We would love to hear from you. Now, Paddy, why don't you give us a summary of today's story? That I surely will. Episode 1, Planet of Giants. Inside the TARDIS, Barbara is observing the Doctor as he works at the console. She burns her hand on a part of the console and the Doctor instructs Susan to check the fault locator. He announces that they are approaching a planet which he believes is Earth in the mid-20th century. But as he is delivering this news, the TARDIS doors open. He hurriedly instructs Ian and Barbara to close them as they are in mid-flight and the results could be devastating. They manage to close the doors and the Doctor tells Susan again to check the fault locator thoroughly. He seems incredibly distressed and Ian and Barbara ask if he is alright, but he brushes off their questions in an irritated tone. They keep pressing him, but he says that they couldn't possibly understand and he goes to check the fault locator himself when Susan says everything is alright. When he comes back, he apologises to Barbara and seems calmer when he has confirmed what Susan had said earlier. They go to look at the exterior view screen, but it explodes, leaving them with no other choice but to investigate themselves. As they leave, the Doctor explains to Ian that with the doors open at the point of materialisation, the space differential between the TARDIS and the rest of the universe is at a dangerous level, and that is why he's so puzzled as to their well-being. They appear to have arrived in some sort of canyon, but the stone walls of the canyon seem to have a strange origin. They split up, and Barbara the Doctor going one way, and Susan and Ian the other. As they progress further, they come across more unusual flora and fauna, such as enormously overgrown earthworms and a giant ant, both of which are dead. The Doctor notices that the canyons that they are in seem to be of some pattern, almost as if they were created intentionally or man-made. Things take a more unusual turn when Ian and Susan come across a large piece of packaging with the word Norwich on it, beside an enormous matchbox, and Barbara and the Doctor come across in a giant matchstick. The Doctor and Susan come to the same conclusion and reveal to their partners that they have shrunk down to about the size of an inch as a result of the space pressure differential. Ian says that this is impossible, but suddenly they are engulfed in darkness and the earth starts to shake. A full-sized person picks up the matchbox, which Ian was standing inside, and walks off with it, just as the Doctor and Barbara return. It is revealed that the crevices that they are in are actually a cobblestone pathway of a household garden. The Doctor climbs to the top of one of the cobblestones and sees the man sitting down outside the house. He says that they need to rescue Ian before they can leave, otherwise he'll be trapped in that same size forever. In the garden, the man is met by another person, a businessman named Forrester. The visitor is a government scientist named Farrow, who has come to discuss the approval of an insecticide being manufactured by Forrester called DN6. Farrow says that unfortunately DN6 is too aggressive as it kills everything beyond the scope of its original design and affects all insect life that it comes in contact with. Forrester announces that if DN6 does not go into production it will ruin him but his bribery attempts are to no avail. As Farrow goes to phone his superiors, Forrest pulls a gun on him. The Doctor, Barbara and Susan are walking down the path when a bee falls from the sky dead. They notice the same aroma coming from it as all the other dead creatures that they have encountered and deduce that there is something deadly in the environment which is affecting all manner of life. The Doctor warns them not to eat anything until they arrive back at the TARDIS. Suddenly they hear a thunderous explosion. Ian leaves the matchbox and sees Farrow dead on the ground. He meets the others and they get the scent of, gu- of gunpowder leading them to believe that the explosion was a gunshot and that Farrow was murdered. As they are discussing the environmental ramifications of what is killing the insects, a cat appears behind them. Episode 2. Dangerous Journey 
The group remains perfectly still and eventually the cat becomes bored and moves off. The doctor says that they will need to be careful to avoid the cat until they can get back to the TARDIS. Susan asks if they could not try and get help from the people in the house, but the others say that due to their size they would not be able to communicate properly. There is also the danger of them being viewed as freaks and marketed as such in some sort of sideshow. The doctor points out that the greatest potential danger of the people in the house is the fact that one of them is a murderer. Suddenly, a shadow falls on them and they see someone approaching. They attempt to flee, but Barbara falls over. Ian picks her up, but they have to run in a different direction than the doctor and Susan. They run inside Farrow's briefcase as it is the safest place at that moment in time. Forrester is returned with one of his own scientists, who's named as Smithers, and he tells him that Farrow pulled a gun on him in an attempt to blackmail him for a large cut of the profits of DN6, and in the ensuing struggle, caused the gun to go off and kill Farrow. Smithers investigates the body and tells Forrester that his story won't hold up under investigation, as it is clear that Farrow was shot from a distance. However, he is willing to help with the cover-up in order to see his life's work of eliminating pest-induced starvation come to fruition. They agree to cover up Farrow's disappearance by making it look like his boat capsized on a way to holiday in France, which he'd earlier mentioned to Forrester. They store his briefcase in the lab before going to dispose of his body. After being put down, Ian and Barbara exit from the briefcase and take in their surroundings. Barbara is a bit battered and bruised due to their journey in the briefcase, so they agree to slowly explore the room. They see scientific equipment as they come out and eventually they come across a mound of wheat, which Barbara discovers is coated in a sap-like substance after she touches it. Ian says that they are most likely in a laboratory which must be working on some sort of insecticide, hence all the dead insects outside. Barbara suddenly remembers the doctor's warning too late but doesn't let on to Ian that she touched the coated wheat. She starts to realise the fatal consequences of what she has done, which Ian takes for depression at their current predicament. He tries to rally her spirits and says that they should try and find something in the briefcase to make a ladder to the ground. She agrees, hoping that there may be something in the briefcase that could give them more information of the insecticide. Ian climbs to the top of the briefcase in an attempt to open the clasp, thereby allowing them to let more light into it so they can search for something to make a rope ladder. While he is doing this, a large fly lands next to Barbara and she faints, but more so from exhaustion than fear. The fly goes away when Ian comes back to help Barbara and he takes her back to the wheat pile. Meanwhile, the doctor and Susan are outside, sheltering by a drain pipe that leads into the laboratory. Left with no other choice, they decide to climb up the pipe in an attempt to rescue their friends. The pipe interior is heavily corroded so they have plenty of handholds to get them up there, but it is still a tough trek. They make it to the top exhausted and find themselves in a giant sink. They take a moment to rest before continuing their search. Barbara wakes up and Ian shows the fly lying dead on top of the wheat pile. He says it died instantly, which distresses Barbara greatly, and she is about to tell Ian of her fears of being infected when they hear Susan calling out for them. Her voice is amplified by the sink, acting as an echo chamber. They arrive at the sink and begin to climb down the plug chain to reach the doctor and Susan. Forrester and Smithers arrive in the lab to clean up after disposing of Farrow's body. Ian and Barbara climb back up the chain and the doctor and Susan go back down the drain to hide. Smithers notices the dead fly and is delighted that his invention works, but can't understand why Farrow was so against it. Forrester does not tell him about the virulence of DN6 and says Farrow was looking for an excuse to stop it. He says that they will need to alter the report so that DN6 cannot, can be approved. After cleaning up, Smithers unplugs the sink, causing water to cascade down into the Doctor and Susan's hiding place. Episode 3. Crisis. The Doctor and Susan climb into the overflow pipe just as water cascades behind them. Suddenly it stops, the Doctor realises that the sink has been plugged again. He says that they will be in trouble if they fill the sink again as water could come down the overflow pipe. They wait on tenterhooks as Smithers and Forrester unknowingly have command over their fate. 
Forrester realises that they need to move Farrow's body to the marina before the tide goes out. Smithers starts showing reluctance to the plan, but Forrester reminds him that he is involved now until the end since he made the decision to help move the body. They go back to the office and Smithers unplugs the sink before they leave. Neither of them notice the cat from earlier sneak into the lab. It goes to investigate the sink where it can smell the doctor and Susan. Once in the house, Forrester forges a different report of DN6 on a blank government form that already has Farrow's signature. Smithers starts a question as to why Farrow was so against the new pesticide. Ian and Barbara go down the plug chain to reunite with their friends and on their way come across the corpse of the cat, having succumbed to the effects of DN6 from water near the sink. The doctor and Susan emerge from the drain and the group rejoices in their reunion. Ian shows the wheat mound to the doctor and he states that it is the same aroma that he detected outside around the corpses of the insects. He also comes to the conclusion that the dead man was most likely murdered to cover up the virulence of DN6. The others say that they should go back to the TARDIS but the doctor says that he cannot leave and risk the pesticide being released. Inside the main house, Forrester says that he will need to impersonate Farrow and give a phone report of his findings. He gives a glowing report of DN6 and continues the ruse by saying that he is now about to embark on his holiday. Unbeknownst to him, the local switchboard operator Hilda is listening in on the conversation and notices the change in Farrow's voice. She points this out to her husband Bert, who is the local police constable, but he says that she is being too nosy. However, she is not deterred and continues to eavesdrops on the conversation coming from the house while Bert goes out in his rounds. When he returns, Hilda tells him that she is certain that Forrester is pretending to be Farrow, but he says he cannot go and investigate as he doesn't have a justifiable reason. Back in the laboratory, the group comes across Smithers' notepad, which contains the formula for DN6. Barbara suggests that they review it to see if there is any possible cure for it. The others don't see the point in trying to find a cure, but they do agree that it's probably beneficial just to see what DN6 actually is. They eventually manage to copy it all out down to a more understandable size and note just how deadly it is. DN6 has actually been made everlasting and as a result can soak into the ground, affecting crops and water supplies and therefore it is potentially deadly to humans. The doctor says that they will need to do something about this and suggests that they look for a telephone in the lab. They notice how Barbara is getting worse but she still doesn't inform them over what she has done. They arrive at the telephone, but they hide when Smithers enters the lab looking for his notes. He goes back to the house when Forrester is finishing speaking to his sales manager, saying that he wants DN6 pushed heavily. Smithers comments on how everything seems to be tied up, but Forrester says that he doesn't want to get overconfident and tries to dial through to the switchboard. In the lab, Susan suggests that they prop up the receiver uh, using test tube corks. As they do this, they notice Barbara getting progressively weak, but she says it is due to hunger. They eventually manage to prop up the receiver enough to open a line to the switchboard operator. However, it is to no avail as they cannot be heard due to their small size. Ian goes down to Barbara who falls unconscious after warning Ian not to touch the handkerchief he had lent her earlier to wipe her hands. The doctor notices the aroma of DN6 off it and realises that she must have come into contact with it and Ian and Susan plead with the doctor to save her. Episode 4. The Urge to Live Barbara wakes up and the doctor admonishes her for not telling them. He tells Ian that if they can get her to the TARDIS then they can go back to her normal size and reduce the effects of DN6 but he doesn't let on to Ian that it is not certain if they can get back to it. At the switchboard Hilda is getting more and more suspicious of the goings on up at the house and sets the exchange line to a busy signal. The tone coming from the sound is magnified to an almost deafening level for the group. They run away back towards the sink. Barbara refuses to go any further as she says she cannot let DN6 be released. She has accepted her fate but Ian begs her to let them save her and appeals to the doctor and Susan for aid but they agree with Barbara. Inside the house, Smithers begins to question Forrester's story about Farrow's blackmail motivation but Forrester tells him not to worry about it and goes back to try the phone again. 
Smithers mentions the, fo- the other phone in the lab may be off the hook and says he will go and check on it, as he also wants to review Farrow's notes. This alarms Forrester, who prepares his gun in case he needs to take care of him as well. The doctor suggests starting a fire to draw the attention to the, ha- to the house in the hopes that Farrow's body is discovered. They think about using one of the gas taps in the lab, but hide when Smithers and Forrester return. When they come in and they see the cat dead on the countertop near the sink, Smithers notices that its fur is sticky and notices the aroma of DN6 coming from it. Forrester accuses Smithers of putting cork tops under the receiver, but Smithers is too occupied with the fact that DN6 seems to be deadlier than first thought. He demands to see Farrow's notes and notices that the last page is missing, causing him to question the blackmail story even further. He goes outside to investigate the garden as Farrow had stated in his notes that he had tested DN6 on a section of it to see the results. Forrester is about to go after him when the phone rings and it is Hilda on the other end of the line. She is suspicious of what has been going on in the house and is pretending to connect through a call for Farrow. Her suspicions are confirmed when she realises Forrester is impersonating him, but Bert listens into the conversation and says he will go investigate. The travellers have managed to open one of the gas taps and Ian and Susan use one of the matches from Farrow's suitcase to set it aflame. They aim it at a can of pressurised insecticide in which will explode and set fire to the lab. Out in the garden, Smithers realises the full effects of DN6 and demands to know the truth from Forrester. Forrester tells him the whole story and then pulls a gun on him to force him to help him dispose of Farrow's body. They go into the lab first to gather up his belongings and just as they enter, the can explodes. A bit of metal strikes Forrester in the eyes and Smithers uses this opportunity to disarm him. Bert arrives and proceeds to take Boatman into custody and the travellers flee back to the TARDIS, carrying one of the infected wheat seeds with them. Back in the TARDIS, the Doctor replicates the journey that caused him to shrink, but first he must repair the exterior view screen so they can gauge if they are on the correct trajectory or not. The attempt is successful as the wheat seed that they brought with them shrinks down, showing that they have returned to their original size. Barrow recovers almost instantaneously, and the Doctor suggests that the others go to wash off any remnants of DN6 after close. While they are doing this, the Doctor frustratedly tries to see their next destination through the view screen, but it is broken again. End of the story. So that is the story recap for Planet of Giants. So now we're going to get some trivia about this story from Trish. Over to you. Cool. So the writer for Planet of Giants was Lewis Marks. This is the first of four Doctor Who writing credits for Lewis. The others are Day of the Daleks, Planet of Evil, great story, and The Mask of Mandragora. All of them are good stories. They really are. He was a writer and producer from the 1950s right up to the early 2000s. And he passed away back in 2010. This story has two directors. We have Mervyn Pinfield and Douglas Camfield. We previously discussed Mervyn in our episode, The Sensorites. This is the second of his three directing credits. The last one being The Space Museum, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Douglas, often referred to as Dougie Camfield. This is his first Doctor Who directing job, but it will not be his last. He went on to direct eight more stories over the years. And again, a lot of these are pretty big hitters. So we have The Crusade, The Time Meddler, The Daleks Master Plan, The Web of Fear, The Invasion, Inferno, Terror of the Zygons, and The Seeds of Doom. Oh, that's a, that's a quite a repertoire for Doctor Who stories. It really is. And we'll discuss more about you know the amazing things that he added to the legacy of Doctor Who through those stories as we get to them. But he was really well respected among a lot of the actors as well, I can tell you that now. 
those are some universally top pick stories for each of those doctors as well yeah they are um he was also a production assistant on an earthy child and marco polo oh sadly dougie passed away in 1984 the air date for this story was the 31st of october to the 14th of november 1964 this story, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit last week, was actually recorded as part of season one, but was then held back as the season opener for season two. Now, people who are good at maths may have realised that I said the air date was the 31st of October to the 14th of November, which is three weeks. And Paddy summarised four episodes. So what's the what with that? <laughs> Though fully scripted and recorded as a four-parter, the third and fourth episodes were merged into a single episode. So it was broadcast as three episodes, even though it was written and recorded as four. And the BBC didn't keep the missing footage that they cut out of episodes three and four. Recreations of these two episodes, which are the ones that we've used for this review, were included in the DVD release, with original cast members reprising their roles for the recorded dialogue wherever possible. The role of the Doctor in these recordings was provided by John Guer? Guer? Mm, no, sorry, that name is just going to be a no-go for me. <laughs> Why does this always happen to me? G-U-I-L-O-R. L-O-R. So, people, you can pronounce it however you wish who a year later would act as a voice double for, for William Hartnell in the 50th anniversary special, The Day of the Doctor. I thought that was John Colshaw doing the, the Hartnell voice. No, apparently John G. Oh, well, fair news to you. <laughs> yeah. So before we get into the rest of the trivia, we should probably discuss the fact that we chose to go with the four episode long version rather than the three episode long version for the story yes usually we try to go with what people would have seen at the time however this story was written as a four-parter mm-hmm. and so we felt the story was best represented in four parts yes rather than in two parts and then a weird merged third part and for anyone that decides to sit down and watch it as a four-parter and then into a three-parter it's glaringly obvious um, that the cuts that were made, even even when it's done down to a three-parter, it's still not entirely um, sequential. Like, I don't know if anyone that's listening watches The Simpsons, but it's like when uh, they're doing Radioactive Man movie and Milhouse runs away, so they just use various scenes of him to try and composite all together, but it's just way out there like they're using him in different locations and i got a sense of that with this is that it leaps and jumps around the place and some of it's asking you questions like like wait what how did he come to that realization why are they being so suspicious of him this way it just seems really really weird so if you do want to watch it in the way that me and patty watched it and you have the dvd episodes one and two as they appear under the episode listings and then you can get episodes three and four by going to the special features if you just watch the story like play entire story it'll give you the abridged episode three instead yeah and um it is if you do watch the three and four it is funny to listen to william russell and caroline ford do their young voices so this is the first though certainly not the last environmentalist doctor who story 
like the first one that kind of had a modern moral message that they wanted to get across Mm. like i said this won't be the last time this comes up on to our guest cast members this week i'm going to say it right now none of these appear in any other doctor who program so i'm just going to get that out of the way at the beginning so first we have forrester who's played by alan tilburn alan served in the army during world war ii though he was invalided out before the war ended. He appeared in other well-known British TV programmes, including the ever-present Z-Cars, Dad's Army and The Sweeney, but he may perhaps be most recognisable from his role as R.K. Maroon in his last film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I knew I knew, I knew him from something else, like um, much like Francis the Wolf, who played Vassar in Keys of Arnis, those are eyebrows you'll never forget yeah i knew i recognized him from somewhere and i couldn't pinpoint where i haven't watched who framed roger rabbit in about 20 years but i knew i recognized him from somewhere so when i looked that up i was like oh that's it that's that's a a lie because you've at least watched and we've at least watched it together in the 10 years that we've been friends so i don't think we have i'm pretty sure we have we're getting off we're getting off topic yeah yeah, I'm, I'm i'm pretty sure that we have uh but that's a discussion for another day Alan sadly passed away in 2003. Next, as Farrow, though he doesn't appear on screen for very long, sadly, is played by Frank Crawshaw. Frank was born in 1899. And he appeared in many TV shows over the years, including Emmerdale, Coronation Street, and a lot of the other sort of British TV staples of the time. He passed away in 1984. Smithers is played by Reginald Barrett. He also appeared in Emmerdale, Last of the Summer Wine, The Avengers, and guess what? Zed Cars. Cars. <laughs> as well as many, many other TV shows. He passed away in 1977. Hilda is played by Rosemary Johnson. Though she did appear in a few other TV roles, there weren't that many, and this is her most notable by far. Rosemary passed away in 1972. Lastly, as Bert we have Fred Ferris. His acting credits include The Avengers, Taxi, Coronation Street, The Saint, Dixon of Docks Green, No Hiding Place, and guess what it is? Zed Cars. Indeed. Is this going to be... also in Zed Cars. I think it's going to be like, you know... A drinking time game? T- <laughs> <laughs> time traveling to either a drinking game or bingo. Yeah. You know. Um, how many times in an episode can Trish say the words Zed Cars? Fred passed away in 1978. I'm trying to think, is there any fun trivia to finish this note off on? Other than the fact that I recently uh, watched Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 1 and 2, so Smithers and Forrester, (laughs) it's like, hmm, (laughs) how very apt. I'll tell you my fun piece of trivia. Yep. When watching episode one for this review, I had to pause at one point. Because I was sat in my living room in the middle of the night laughing my ass off. Because all that came into my mind was bees. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Are we going to tell that story beforehand or are we going to wait till we actually get to that season? Um, I, It may be a long time before we get there. So we'll just preface that story mm. at this point by saying bees disappearing and just bees in, bees in general long time internal joke between me and Paddy. Yes. In terms of Doctor Who, not in terms of actual ecological loss of bees. Yeah. yeah. 
So, a fairly contained story this week. So let's get into our character discussions. Paddy, thoughts on the Doctor? Um, so last uh, episode in Reign of Terror, we discussed about the Doctor's um, vitality and his ability mm-hmm. to walk 100 miles with nary breaking a sweat. It's almost like it was edited that way. But uh, in this one, though, we do actually get to see him feel a bit of his age as he's walking as they're climbing up the drain pipe and whenever there's a chance for William Hartnell to act old I, I like to see it because he, he plays the the, 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 he, like, the fact that the doctor is someone that looks to be in their 60s uh, 70s uh, well no I'd say more 60s um, but has such a kind of a youthful spirit. William Hartle does that brilliantly. But when he plays his age, I can just imagine him kind of going, what am I using as um, inspiration? Oh, wait, I've got a twinge in me back. <laughs> I'll use that for this scene. <laughs> yeah, an um, interesting thing about that, right? So they're an inch tall, roughly. Yes. How high would you say a drain pipe would go from outside to the kitchen? So... F- it, it depends so like okay I'm going to say about maybe three foot yeah so a foot has 12 inches yes so three feet would be about 36 inches yeah that they had to climb up mm. that pipe yeah so if you do the maths and math that up to a fully sized human being we'll say a fairly tall human being will be generous and say a six foot tall person, which is taller than yeah. me, shorter than you. Um, that would mean a six foot person climbing to a height of six by 36, 180, 216-ish feet. That's insane. <laughs> uh, I, I, lo- I loved it. Your science brain was working there. <laughs> But uh, someone's going to tell me I got the maths wrong, but I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) It's my show; I can be right if I want to be right. Uh, Yeah, like it's like that's that's what I one thing I suppose I love about the whole "Honey, I Shrunk the Doctor" side of things is um, it's how kind of um, what's the word I'm trying to how kind of clever and innovative that they can be with the the surroundings of the story like the giant like the giant matchsticks and the matchboxes and something as innocuous as climbing up a three foot tall drain pipe when you're just roughly the size of an inch like also they they pointed out that the pipe leading up into the lab was corrugated like jesus do you need a tetanus shot after that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. definitely definitely but um i it's also a really good thing that I don't think we've seen up until now was here we have a capacity where or just we're in a story where the doctor has the capacity to leave because the villains don't realize that they're even there mm. whereas they like, say like so like we had the sensorites where like the reservoir was poisoned but they really couldn't leave because they were held at the power of the sensorites whereas here they're under their own power, yet the Doctor chooses to stay. Which I think it's, like again, 
Well, I've already think that's the first time that we've seen this kind of thing where he's the one that says he can't, we can't leave. I think so. The only other because t- if we go if we go by by episode, so on an earthly child, they were kidnapped and were trying to get their way back. Yeah, Daleks, we kind of have it, but only actually no, we don't because Ian had left the fluid link behind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, not in Daleks. Uh, Edge not applicable. Uh, Marco Polo, Marco won't let them leave. Yeah. And the TARDIS is broken. Um, Marinus. Marinus. They're blocked off. They're blocked off. Aztecs, they're blocked off. Aztecs, they're blocked off. And yeah, Sensorites, um, they're not allowed to leave either. So yeah, this is the first time. And Reign of Terror, they're They're kidnapped. They're all separate. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like this is the first time where we've seen instance that, like, okay, they're more than capable of leaving on their own volition but he chooses to stay because of the the potential dangers of dn6 and i like i liked it i liked and he was very calm he wasn't very authoritative he didn't have his blustering voice it was the simple matter of fact we can't leave yeah and it it's nice that we get that insight into that side of the doctor that we, like if you watch new who you you expect that. of course he'd do that yeah but we wouldn't expect that of this doctor. It's not a go-to expectation. So it's nice that we get that so early on. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's the, this is the one thing, I suppose, that we, like, in terms of like most doctors, like, you know, because every doctor probably has their their downsides or not their downsides, but they're less, they're not, they're, they're not, they're not so good performances. Mm. And up until now I don't think William Hartnell has really had a really bad performance I'm not saying that this is a really bad performance it just lends itself to he's constantly evolving the character the whole way along Yeah. like we've seen him for like this is nine stories now which is equating to about nearly 40 something episodes if we put everything together and we're still seeing more new sides to him so like the fact that he stayed on for three years uh, like it's like you know he was the first doctor um but uh, what we've said before about the show being such a success is it's again down to William Hartnell and his ability to constantly evolve the Doctor I think yeah um, what I like about this story as well is you know we talked in the last story you know when they were obviously they didn't film it as film as finishing up season mm-hmm. one but it ended up being the last one of season one that story starts with the Doctor being grumpy and having the royal hump with yeah Ian and Barbara this story also starts with him getting odd <laughs> and snapping <laughs> at people and stuff like that because again like we've said that's just part of who he is mm. at least this time though he acknowledges the fact that he kind of lost his temper and he explains it which is that he forgets the niceties under pressure which actually now that I think about it a lot of the doctors do yeah Different pressures, admittedly, but they're not all nicey nicey all the time. Oh no! Like there are t- there are times like the doctor is an absolute dick. Yeah. Um. The one thing I loved though is he only apologized to Barbara. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he didn't bother apologizing to Chesterfield. I mean Chesterton. Um. He only apologized to Barbara, which I love. I I've you and I have discussed this separately um before i love the relationship dynamic between the doctor and barbara 
And I love that he genuinely apologizes to her here because you and I have discussed previously. I don't think he did apologize to her in Edge of Destruction. Yeah. That's but in the here, past, forget it. Yeah, that's in the past. But here he does. And he like, he realizes very quickly, I snapped at her. I shouldn't have. I need to apologize. And it, it's very much, my dear, I'm sorry. Do you mm. know? Which I love. And it, they have such a cute relationship together. They're so adorable. Well, I think that's like, and I think it's a hallmark like from Edge is that their relationship has constantly grown. And like, we know that you know there will be a time where Barbara and Ian leave, and that's going to be like a one hell of a sad parting because I I think now he views Barbara as a as a sort of a daughter. Yeah, me too. In, and and especially just because she's so much she's so mature and she can make so many really like strong decisions as we've seen in like the Aztecs or in Reign of Terror, and again like it's I have a feeling that. He probably favors Barbara over Ian. Yeah, and so that's why, like, he doesn't apologize to Ian. Uh, so, like, unfortunately, you, like that makes Ian the middle child, the looked over child. I think his relationship with Barbara is because Barbara gives it straight, and he appreciates that. Do you know if we're going back to Edge, which is really where their their friendship sort of truly began at the end of that episode? Um, she laid into him, and oh, she yeah. speaks truth you know she doesn't molly coddle she speaks the truth when talking to him um and i think he appreciates that and also when it's come down the line of you know any discussions within the group usually when the doctor isn't completely by himself in his opinion usually the doctor and barbara are actually of a similar mindset Mm. so i think he sort of finds a kindred spirit in her in some ways. Uh, would this now be a good time to segue into our companion discussion leading off with Barbara? One final thing on the Doctor before we jump into that is yeah. going back to what you said about you know his old man part showing. Yeah. What I think is really evident in that though is kind of why I brought in the maths of if you were to think about how high they actually climbed relatively speaking. Mm. Oh yeah. Is even though it's clearly difficult for him and we can tell he's struggling like he is struggling to get up the pipe and the fact that he has to go back down again do you know what I mean it's clearly difficult for him but he will do it and he will put in his all because they're his friends oh yeah and it shows his dedication to his friends which we haven't seen as often in season one and like that's the thing as well is that um, I probably didn't say it in the story recap, but um, Susan takes the lead when they're climbing up the pipe, and the doctor is at the rear, so that way there's no one to help give him a boost if he starts to flag. Mm. And I wonder that's just the way, like you know, it was deliberately written that way as a sort of a the doctor is the type of one that look I'm not going to let someone fucking give me a shove up the arse so that I can get up this drain pipe, <laughs> or it could just be. Um, they did rock paper scissors for who goes first into the big dark scary pipe yeah so to your point moving on to the doctor's new best friend mm-hmm. <laughs> Barbara <laughs> yeah Um, I have a pet peeve that you are intimately familiar with yes which is I don't like it when people hide the fact that they are ill <laughs> yes I know that from experience you do not like that I do not like that at all 
it royally pisses me off. It helps absolutely nobody and it only ends up hurting everyone in the long run. Yes. Like, kudos to Barbara for giving her all and trying to help, you know, with the phone and everything like that. But not telling people really didn't help. She did nothing wrong. They had no way of knowing before she picked up the grain that it was coated in anything that could have been dangerous. It was just sticky. The, you know, it could have been sugar pops for all she knew. Um, not telling them. I just, I'm like, Barbara, you're such an intelligent woman. Why are you being stupid? Yeah, and watching that scene, I did want a bowl of sugar puffs. Um, but uh, watching that scene, it cemented that, well, for the time being, Barbara is out of my zombie survival slash Aladdin Cave of Wonders uh, exploration parties. Uh, because it just, you know, for God's sake, woman, don't touch anything. And to your point about your pet peeve, I suppose maybe it's a small bit hypocritical of me uh, to give out to someone about hiding the fact that they're sick mm. uh, from the re- from the rest of the people that care about them. Um, it was still like, like all the stuff is going on. You know that you've like you know you know shady shady weird shit is happening, and the one rule that you're told is not to touch anything. And it's like, hey, and look at this. Um, she does have one like she has one redeeming side to this moment of stupidity in my uh, estimation and that's when she refuses to feel sorry for herself and she does she wants to do the right thing by stopping DN6 before it can go global oh yeah like her heart as always is in the right place it always is um it's just and you know it's a bit mean to call her out on it I think because obviously she was freaking terrified and you know kudos to Jacqueline Hill because she played this really well um she's clearly terrified beyond belief about what's going to happen to her and she's clearly trying to save the others the pain of knowing that that's going to happen But the fact that she would give up her own life, essentially, to for the greater good, you know, yeah. to save the world as a whole, it really speaks to Barbara as a character. And it is a redeeming quality in this story where, like I said, I'm like, dude, what, what are you doing? So does that mean the next time I get sick and don't tell you, you're going to think back on this episode and go, wait, he has redeeming qualities. I can't be too mad at him. No, you don't get any more chances because I expected you learned from your previous mistake. So, no. Fine. <laughs> so, speaking of Barbara and her becoming ill, mm-hmm. we have to talk about the least observational scientist I think we've seen in a while, <laughs> which is Mr. Ian Chesterton. You must be looking at my notes because I have that one. Ian, Ian Chesterton, man of science and poor perceptive hearing. <laughs> but like, dude, seriously, like, what the hell? Um, what, what was your, so, go on, what were your thoughts on him as a whole? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the word ass came in there before that word. So, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, um, like, so when it came to this story, again, I was just like, 
okay, cool, like you're in your element. You're like, and like we said, like, oh, we haven't seen Ian be a man of science for a while. Well, here he is, a man of science. And I, that's why I equate it to being just completely blind, deaf and dumb to what's going on. Is that, ah, oh, I'm back in my old familiar territory, test tubes and science and widgets and whatnot. Um, so Ian is very angry and scared in this story for quite a fair bit of time. And I put that down to the fact of he holds himself responsible for his lack of perception uh, that basically Barbara is sick because he wasn't paying attention. In a mean way, I kind yeah. of think he should feel responsible. Dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, why did you think she wanted your handkerchief, Ian? What could she possibly have needed it for? Yeah. Like when it didn't come back with snot on it, it was like, you know. <laughs> or when like, it didn't minute. come back at all. At all. Joe, and the fact that you were just discussing, hey, this looks like it's confidence, and she's saying it out loud. It's sticky. Like, dude, like, what the <laughs> hell? Um, in fairness to him, though, like, you know, we talked about last week how we've had a lot of historical stories where Barbara could really come into her, her own, but most of the sciencey stories were kind of set in the future, so Ian didn't really have that option. Now we have a modern setting, very heavily science based story. Um, I one thing I would have liked to have seen is Ian <laughs> shouldn't need to describe uh, chemical compounds with the descriptor of a C with a line at a forty-five degree angle to a whatever. Just call it by the chemical it is, Ian. <laughs> yeah. Like I know that like they couldn't see the whole page, but they can see what was essentially benzoic something or other. Um, mm. They can see that much. They can see the hexagonal benzene with the thing coming off it. He can see that and he knows what it is. Just call it what it is. You're wasting time by describing each angle of each line, which I just thought was a bit annoying. Yeah. Um, like there was just, there was something about everyone in this story uh, not everyone, I'm sorry, because like, I really enjoyed the Doctor in the story. I think there was just something about the companions in the story where there's more f- faults to their redeeming qualities, I think. Yeah. And I, I, w- I would put it down to, okay, they're completely out of their element. Like, they're, for fuck's sake, they're one inch tall. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. other thing about Ian... Okay, so some background for our listeners. Right. Me and Paddy discussed this when we were talking about last week's episode. So... Paddy, what did you study in college? I studied history. Cool. And what did I study in college? You studied science. To be Chemistry. what, exactly? To be a science teacher. Yes. So we actually have quite a lot in common with Ian and Barbara um, when it comes to our studies. Ian, you never, ever, ever, ever light a gas tap on fire. I get that you want to make the can explode. But you do not ever light a gas tap on fire. <laughs> Bad science teacher Ian. <laughs> Bad Ian. But they were so happy to get that match lit. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was that was very, very funny. Um so we talked about you know the companions not exactly being at their strongest. They had some strong moments, but maybe not at their strongest mm. in the story. So we have our final regular companion which is susan 
what were your thoughts yeah. on Susan and the story? Again, uh, I feel like she's been relegated to the sidelines. Um, given the fact that the doctor is shown to be struggling a bit here due to, I suppose, the physical nature of the the challenges in front of them. I would have preferred to have seen Susan, now she's actually physically with her grandfather, be a bit stronger, be a bit more supportive, be a bit, come on, grandfather, we can do this. Come on, come on, that type of thing, you know? And I, I, I didn't see it here. Yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't agree with you 100%. I agree with you a bit. Um, I wouldn't agree with you 100%, though, because I think she does get stuck in. You know, there's no complaining, there's no pessimism that we've seen from her in previous stories, particularly last week. Mm. Um, she does get stuck in. Yeah. Maybe just not as supportive of the doctor getting stuck in as maybe she could have been. But maybe yeah. it's because she knows him quite well and she knows that he wouldn't appreciate her coddling him. Maybe. You know, we don't. he doesn't like people criticising him or t- saying that he can't do things. So maybe she just knows him well enough to... You know, when they're climbing the pipe, she does ask him how he's getting on and he says, fine, keep going. And she's like, okay, cool. We'll keep going. Um... But also maybe part of it is, you know, he's her grandfather. He's kind of larger than life. Mm. And maybe part of her just doesn't see it. You know, he, what could he ever possibly need her help for? I think maybe my views of Susan have been kind of coloured by the sense of we got a great tour de force of Susan in Sensorites. Mm. And we're now two stories away from Sensorites. And she's kind of gone back to what she was beforehand. And it's like, it, it's, it's so annoying. It's like, like it's almost like, you know, you eat a uh, bar of chocolate before you find out that that bar has gone off the market forever type thing, you know? Yeah. It's like, I've seen the potential. I want to see more of it. And it's just kind of regressing back now, which is kind of, anno- it, it annoyed me because I do like Susan. And I just wanted her to see her. As you said, yeah, she gets stuck in. But, more like the supporting member of an ensemble group as opposed to an individual yeah i said i disagree with you a little bit and the reason why i would disagree just in that last um description that you gave is Hmm. i think last week's episode reign of terror was definitely a step back and we discussed that last week yeah this i think if you if you took out reign of terror and imagine they went from sensorites to this yeah i don't i wouldn't see this story as a step back but it's not a step forward either. She's in place. There's no further development. She's just static. That would be my read of it. Because the one thing that I did like was how she shows her intelligence and how she figures out quite quickly what happened to them. And yeah. when Ian's like, that's impossible, she doesn't say like, oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. She knows she's right. And she knows this is exactly what happened. You have to believe me. So I wouldn't consider the story a step backwards for her. But I wouldn't consider it a step forwards either. So you know, if we're if we're using if we're using sensorites as our baseline, because it's definitely a step forward compared to last week. Yeah. But if we're using sensorites as our baseline, I think she's in the same position she was then. She hasn't grown no. any further after that. I, I you know, that that's that's fair. All right. I suppose I, in my own just desire, I just want to see like a bit more of the sensorites as opposed to kind of staying. Like, again, I just wanted to see the next step in her progression, you know? Yeah. The one thing I actually would have liked to have seen a bit more of, um, and 
you know, this was a short story in general, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we've always seen how Barbara cares for Susan. And actually more so than Susan caring and supporting the doctor, I would have liked to see her quote-unquote mother Barbara a bit more. Do you know? Return that, not favor, but you know what I mean. Um, And be more supportive of Barbara when they find out what's happening to her. And even beforehand when Barbara's just, you know, looking run down and stuff. It's kind of Ian and the doctor that kind of take care of her. Um, Mm. And Susan's there and she's not being a bitch around. Do you know what I mean? But if I was to pick her to be more supportive of someone, I maybe would have tried to have her supporting Barbara the way Barbara has always supported her. That's, that's, yeah, no, that's fair. I'd agree with that. Cool. So, in terms of our companions, we usually include as well any story-based companions. So these being other characters in the story that have a significant impact. So for this, you had down Hilda and Bert. So do you want yes. to give your thoughts on Hilda and Bert? So my initial thoughts of Hilda and Bert were that they are very... It, it comes across like the, the setting is in a very rural English village. Mm-hmm because she's she's the postmistress and she's also the telephone switchboard operator and now i know we kind of discussed this before in the past but i'm just kind of wondering is she because it's such a small village is she a bit nosy in terms of like maybe listening in on telephone conversations to get a bit of village gossip um which is why like i i just but maybe it's because of the the episode three in it because that's what i watched first and then i went back and i reviewed episode four um when she starts kind of listening in on the phone calls it's like coming from the big house i I just got this whole image of rather than being something suspicious she's just nosy Uh, and that that was my thought of it and then when it came to bert um he again he's very kind of rural small town police i was waiting for the whole you know hello 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 what's all this then type thing, you know <laughs> when, he, when he when he when he made the arrest at the end um i suppose maybe a small part of it is like i know that we've said before like when it comes to, like the lost stories and the animated uh sections of it we try not to let that uh take away from the performances but with this one uh episodes three and four it's recreation actors that are doing the voice for hilda and bert so maybe that's kind of uh tilting it a small bit for me yeah so i don't i don't fully agree with you on hilda specifically right yeah um and the example i would go with is you know other tv programs that have had a similar character you know the switchboard operator who's also the postmistress who also runs the local shop you know she clearly does all of these things and it's only natural that she would know what everyone sounds like (laughs) because they all have to call her if they want to call somebody else um so my read of it was that clearly pharaoh had been making lots of phone calls so she was kind of used to him calling and so when she has a new voice coming through, I'm sure there's a little bit of curiosity of, oh, who's this? This person is new. But then he claims it's Farrell, but she knows what he sounds like. And I think it maybe starts off as a bit of like morbid curiosity. 
do you know mm. like what the hell is this i don't think it's gossip based i think but i do think it's just curiosity and i think once she starts to realize that hold on this is the same man he's just muffling his voice i think it's i think the rest of it comes from concern do you know because her response isn't oh wait till i tell the ladies about this or oh my god you'll never guess this is she's trying to get bert to go up and have a look yeah to investigate it so that would be where i would kind of differ with you on my feelings on hilda my feeling of bert i I don't really have one to be honest he seems like a nice enough guy you know he's not willing to throw his police weight around where he doesn't have justification to do so which is good Mm -hmm. um but to your point i think you know watching episodes three and four as separate entities it's very hard to get an understanding of their dynamic because it's audio being played over the same like five sets of clips over and over again. Yeah. And it's very hard to actually figure out where in the story that clip actually originally came from. <laughs> so it seems like they're doing the same pattern of behavior over and over again. <laughs> yeah. When that's obviously not what's happening. So you can't really get like, what kind of facial expressions was he making when she was saying these things or you know how panicked was she looking when she was hearing a different voice on the phone do you know so this is one of the it's the first story where for me like i know we had it a little bit last week with the animation of leon but this is the first story for me where the recreated the way that they recreated the story took away from the characters for me, particularly Hilda and Bert, who we only get to know in episodes three and four. In the episode three condensed version, because of the way that edit was done, and I can't believe that is the version that went to air. Like, what the hell? Um, it Their relationship dynamic, it, it still makes no sense, to be honest. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like in, the, in, the, in the television edit, it's like, who the fuck are these people? Yeah, and like their scenes are so randomly chopped in it just it, it makes no sense so i think hilda and bert i think our characters i would have been interested to see how it was originally filmed for them and i think hilda to your concerns i think you may have maybe not liked her more you know but i think you maybe wouldn't have thought her as much of a busy busybody if we'd seen it in its entirety the way it was actually filmed I have a feeling that there's a lot about the story that if I had seen it of its entirety, my view, my assessment of it would be very different. Yeah. And that's the one thing I'm, whoever made the decision to uh, cut it down to three episodes, I'm shaking my fist at you right now. Gerarg. Yes, Gerarg, Gerarg. So the two people who we don't have to rely just on the recreations of three and four or the weird condensed version that is three... And um, we get a good insight into them in the first two episodes are our villains. Yep. So will we do the big bad first or the small bad? Uh, we'll do Mr. Burns first. <laughs> cool. So Forrester, the, the first three words I have down here are cold calculating asshole. Yeah, pretty much. And I, the, he is very cold. He's very calculating. The one thing though that I just... Um, 
Like for someone that seems so like shrewd and intelligent, like could he not have come up with a better like story as to why Pharaoh is dead in the garden? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's, like, it's a little it's a little bit much. Although I don't know what, who it reflects worse on him for coming up with such a bad story or Smithers for believing it. Well, Smithers, I think uh, he has different motivations. So, like, uh, I'll we'll get into that when we discuss Smithers. But I would have loved to have seen full size Doctor engage with Forrester. Oh yeah, oh definitely. That that uh, would have been a Doctor Who speech, definitely. Oh, it w- it would have been fantastic because like he's like like Forrester seems like the kind of guy that you know if you shook his hand you'd have to like wipe your hand afterwards like to to get to get like whether it be crude oil or just like palm sweat you'd have to get it away from you. Um, he's definitely um he's one of those guys that wants to own the world type thing mm-hmm. and he's his own worst enemy in that regards because he wants he he wants everything that he doesn't think of the ramifications of what getting everything will cause and like yeah because like you know dn6 which it, with its initial proposal seems like a very beneficial thing but because potentially he took shortcuts or because he wanted it to make it better than everything else in the market, he like overshot overshot the market and is now one of the most deadly fucking pesticides in the world. And therein lies his own downfall. It's his own greed and avarice is his downfall. So he's yeah. he he's his own, he is his own villain. Yeah, the thing that I find about Forrester is he is very much the big business, do anything for profit stereotype, do you know? Um, but the thing that I, the thing that I question is, is he short-sighted by his quest for money? Do you know where he's already started all of this stuff and he's already has everything lined up to go into production, so he can't wait to see if Smithers can maybe rework the formula. Do you know, like he doesn't even give that an option, do you know? Um, and Smithers is quite intelligent, you know, so maybe he could have reworked it. So is it just that he's short sighted in his quest for money? Or is he just plain evil? Well, see, this is the thing, though, is that there is. We don't we know that he has a lot of money tied up in DN6, but we don't know why, like we don't know like what time of the year it is is there going to be like is there some expected big boom in like uh pest life on farms that they're looking for a new pesticide on the market mm. is it's got something to do potentially with like smith's whole thing was about pesticide uh to remove pest induced starvation is there potentially a market for a new pesticide to help uh, starving nations that type of thing we don't know what the outer stakes are so we're left with a lot of assumptions to see whether that like that is a good question and I don't think we're going to find the answer based on the story. No. So I think, you know, it, it's fairly obvious, though, that in the terms of the story, Forrester is the bad guy. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, no, <laughs> there's no second guessing that. <laughs> However, we then have Smithers. Yes. Smithers. <laughs> Who, again, the first two words I have for Smithers are just poor guy. Like, he's only the villain because, A, he, even though he doesn't fully agree with Forrester, he goes along with Forrester. Yeah. 
Um, and also, on top of that, the only reason he's the villain is because he is unaware of what his pesticide does. As soon as he reads the report, or as soon as he figures out what it does, he's immediately like, we can't go ahead with this. No, this is this is no, this isn't what I wanted. We need to stop. Mm. The poor bastard thought he was doing a good thing, and was genuinely devastated when he realized that his creation would be so devastating for the world. Yeah, because he came across as a bit of a conundrum, like because he clearly wants to do nothing but good, yet he's also. I'm not sure if Ruth. I have ruthless on in my notes, but like I'm not. I'm not sure now if ruthless is the right word. But he's so driven to do good that he's willing to cover up a potential murder, like or a man, like or at least a manslaughter, to see his lifelong ambition fulfilled. Yeah, and he kind of reminds me a little bit of some other scientists that we're going to see in future Doctor Who stories. Mm. Yeah, you know, Kettlewell kind of comes to mind um, from mm-hmm. Robot. Um, yeah. but the thing is he's strong armed into being a villain you know, he knows that Forrester killed um, Farrow he knows that he's not entirely certain how it happened but he knows he killed him Yeah, and he also knows that if he backs if he tries to call the police or whatever that Forrester will likely kill him as well so he goes along with it does that make him a bad guy in the context of the story yes it does but you kind of understand it. Yeah, because like, I'd be like, one thing I'm just kind of curious about is how would it have played out if Forrester wasn't a complete asshole to him? Like, the reason like that Smithers starts to kind of question about what's going on is more so because of how Forrester starts treating him. And you'd be kind of wondering, like, that if Forrester was a, was a small bit more, you know, we, we have put down cool and calculating, but if he kind of... Ad- was a bit more cool and calculating than what he eventually unraveled to be. Like, try to keep Smithers on side without being a complete D-bag to him. Like, the characters could have gone a completely... The, the outcome for the characters could have gone a completely different way. Yeah, I think I think the way... So, so like, with Forrester, as in, he's cold and calculating, as in he doesn't feel yeah. much. Whereas he's not yeah. cool, he's not relaxed in it. There's probably, probably oh, yeah. a difference between, yeah. between those two. Um, yeah. I think, though, had Forrester... And this is where I said Smithers is kind of a, a, an interesting conundrum. Had Forrester been standing closer to Pharaoh mm-hmm. so that his story of we struggled for the gun was believable, would Smithers have been as aware of Forrester's behavior or would he have accepted it as normal? Like the fact yeah. that he doubts the start of the story I think is why he's so observant of the rest of it mm. and maybe if Forrester had been stood closer to Farrow or had come up with a better story on why he had to shoot Farrow from a distance um, maybe Smithers wouldn't have questioned him as much but I still think the redeeming quality of Smithers is as soon as he read that final page of the report yeah. Or as, as soon as he like discovered what was written in that final page of the report. Yeah. No, he he tried to pull it back. It's um just un- like undo my damage type thing. Yeah, no matter anything else that is still Smithers truth is I was creating this to save people. 
Yeah. We have to stop. Uh, so that is the characters for the story Planet of the Giants uh, discussed. So how about we move on to our scores and assessments for the story? Uh, Trish, how about you start us off? Cool. This was probably the most difficult story to rate, I'll be honest. Hmm. Um, watching the first two episodes, I was all ready to give this like a four. Yeah. Do you know, I was. I thought the concept was well thought out. The sets and the effects were really good. I mean, they even made giant rubber bungs. I mean, how cool is that? Mm. Um, And they had some good science in there as well, you know, with how the sound would be distorted because of their smaller size and things like that, which I thought was great. And it delivered on the message. Like we said, this is going to be the first, this is the first environmental story. And it delivers on that message. And we see all of the characters fully in agreement while ian obviously is concerned about barbara and wants to get her back to the ship to make her better he you know he does still care about what's happening and he Mm. does agree that they need to make it stop so all of that i absolutely loved i thought it was very very well done i actually like the fact that smithers is this sort of complex character that you know, only wants to do good and unfortunately is doing bad things without realising it. And, like I said, like the the message that, like, there is a cost to scientific advancement and sometimes that cost is too high and so we need to stop and rethink our situation. All of that is fabulous. And like I said, I was well on the way to giving the story a four or even higher. The first two episodes were so good. Hmm. Then we got to episodes three and four. Yes. And you know, we've said that we don't like docking points purely because of the reconstruction. We've docked them a little bit, but not by much, you know, previously. You know, the animation Reign of Terror kind of gave away a little bit for me and with Marco Polo some of the sound stuff was kind of irritating. But the way they did the reconstruction of three and four which for anyone who hasn't seen it it's a combination of some existing shots with proper audio and everything as is some really bad cg renderings like really bad like er early like nicktoons cartoons type thing yeah and then playing audio over different clips and it just immediately took me out of the story, which I hated because, you know, the audio, it was still a good story happening, but it immediately took me out. Um, and reusing the same clips over and over with a different audio was just painful to watch. I would have rather they either did it all in their weird janky CG rendering, because yeah. at least it would have been consistent. Um, so like have the existing clips and then anywhere where they don't have the surviving clip use the word CG rendering or instead anywhere they don't have the surviving clip just use a still yeah do you know so we know who's talking and we have a general idea of where they are um the combined version of the episode so when I first watched the episode three and four I I did sort of make a note of okay maybe we maybe you and I were coming at this from the wrong 
side of things. And maybe our desire to review the entire story was kind of blinding what we should have been <laughs> actually reviewing. So then I went to watch the combined version. And I, I, I nearly had to stop. It it It's so disjointed. The, the story loses all consistency whatsoever. As bad as the reconstructed versions are, they are better <laughs> yeah. than the version that went live. And... I, you know, part of me wants to drop this down to like a two and a half or a two even because it just ruins it so much. But I can't because the first two were so good. So I've given it a three. And all of that is from the first two episodes. <laughs> and actually, I'm right there with you in terms of the score. I'm also at a three. Um, like, this is the first time since we started doing the show that I felt like. I was actually doing work when I was reviewing the story. Mm. Like, cause like, like how I do it is I watch an episode a day and I review that episode. And then once the story's finished, I also do the characters and notes from my perspective. Um, but this is the first time I felt like I actually had a job to do. And it's down to, cause I watched it as one, two, three. And then I watched it as three and four afterwards. And like for the cut together, um version it's just so all over the place it's like there's they've left out some really big things that when smithers makes these realizations like for example now the cat the dead cat it's not factored into episode three so smithers realization seems to kind of come out of nowhere that this is bad and uh, burton hilda's thing again it's as i said who the fuck are these people uh so it was just so weird um which is a shame because like as you say like the first two sto- first two episodes were great like the, uh, the honey i shrunk the doctor concept which is what i'm calling it is it's so much fun to see them play with bigger versions of like normal day things uh forrester starts off as a really interesting villain and i would have loved to have seen like maybe in three and four the doctor grow or at least from four the doctor grows to full size and has it out with him on a sort of a moral basis uh i'll be with a, with a gun between them i th- that would have been it would have been so much better but unfortunately it's not to be so with also the same issues as yourself with the, like how they did the reconstructions i would have preferred to have just been stills and audio they, they didn't yeah. need to use re- reuse footage they should have just used stills and audio like the guys in loose cannon did um there's one other part of it that it it I it boggles my mind as to how it potentially works, and it's it just funny. Is whenever Pharaoh is prote- or sorry, Forrester is impersonating Pharaoh, he puts a handkerchief over the the mouthpiece of the phone, and all I could think of is Police Squad, when like they pretend to be other people, and then when you actually listen to them, it's actually the other person speaking, and it's like <laughs> I, I just couldn't get that. I sorry, I just couldn't get that out of my head for the entirety of it. So unfortunately the decisions that were made around the production of this story dropped the score down to a tree for me because again the concept is great the set design the acting uh, for the majority of it is really really good it's just a, it's got a weak second act it's got a weak second half and unfortunately that's what affects the score yeah and like i was trying to think you know when, when we were coming into this today and like when i because I, I was teetering on the i will be honest like i was like Teacher on the edge between a two and a half and a three. Do you know? I was so, so tempted to go with a two and a half. 
Um, but I, I couldn't I couldn't bear it because it's just so good. And I think if you're someone who how to put it, I asked myself the question of would I recommend this story? Do you know? Most stories that are like a two and a half or a two, I wouldn't recommend people watch them. Yeah. Do you know? I, I don't think there's any benefit. So I was asking myself, would I recommend this story? And my answer was yes. I would recommend people watch this story. What I would maybe say is for episodes three and four, shut your eyes. Yes. And just listen to us. Or like, or maybe even just like read the target novelization of the story. Yeah. Because um, Terence Dix includes... Terence Dix is the target novel and he includes all this stuff in it. Um, but it is a great story and, you know, not to... Well, we've already jumped the timeline, I suppose it doesn't matter if we jump it again. Um, people often criticise New Who for being too political. Oh. And for being too, as our friends on Mission Log say, too bonk-bonk on the head. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to environmental messages. Guys, it started with the first Doctor and it started with this story. Mm-hmm. Who has always had a moral standing behind it. Not every episode is as moral as, you know, maybe an episode of Star Trek or something like that. Yeah. But the Doctor is an environmentalist and he's very much for protecting the planet and stuff like that. So if you're someone who likes those types of stories or if you're someone who struggles with those stories and doesn't see how they fit into the Doctor as a character... I would highly, highly recommend coming back and watching this. And like I said, either stopping after episode two and reading the Target novel for the rest of it or (laughs) just close your eyes or just watch it the way we did knowing that you're going to have a bit of a disjointed experience because the story is very good. Yeah. No, absolutely. Hands on agree on that. Cool. So that brings us to the end of Planet of Giants. Next week, we're going to see the return of one of our previous villains. The Daleks will be coming back in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. And we would also have a parting of the ways as well. Shh. Spoilers. (gasps) (laughs) Talk to you next time. See you guys. Bye.